Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When Gustavus Adolphus, the King of Sweden, landed on the Baltic shores of northern Germany in summer 1630, he was faced with several dilemmas, foremost among them being the need for allies and supplies. Believing that both resources existed in the lands of the Elector of Brandenburg, a ruling prince in the northeast of Germany who happened to be his cousin, Gustavus wrote a strongly worded letter to him, which has been immortalised ever since, with good reason. The Swedish king wrote, The elector has to be friend or foe. When I come to his borders, he must declare himself cold or hot. This is a fight between God and the devil. If my cousin wants to side with God, then he has to join me. If he prefers to side with the devil, then indeed he must fight me. There is no third way. If the elector chose his master, the Holy Roman Emperor, then Sweden's king would be his foe and all of his lands would be ripe for the taking. If he chose to side with his cousin King Gustavus Adolphus, who was stationed with an abundance of soldiers nearby, then Gustavus would still probably suck his lands dry, but the elector would at least be permitted to hold on to these lands if he was lucky. Harrowing indeed was the prospect of turning against his emperor, the constitutional and traditional figurehead of the elector of Brandenburg's world. Just as sure as there was no third way in Gustavus Adolphus's mind, so too was there no winning formula for the elector of Brandenburg. The best he could do would be to choose the lesser of two evils, and at that moment it was felt wise to accommodate the king that had the power to immediately destroy him and hope for mercy from the emperor in the future. The elector of Brandenburg's dilemma was severe, but it was far from the worst position that his German peers faced, or even his European peers faced, while the ravages of the Thirty Years' War were endured. The city of Magdeburg was proudly Protestant, historically distinctive and culturally important. Its rich past also granted it a population of nearly 40,000, designating it as one of the largest cities of the Holy Roman Empire. Yet Magdeburg was also many things to Count Tilly, the Habsburg Generalissimo, who had surrounded the city in a siege in spring 1631. Above all, Magdeburg was obliged to aid the Emperor, since its people were his subjects and the Habsburg army which camped outside were the agents of this Emperor. In the months before, Magdeburg had sided with the invading Swedes and ignored several orders from the Emperor to abandon them at once and provide his soldiers with the aid they needed. Magdeburg was in possession of some badly needed provisions, not to mention coinage, which could keep the soldiery going for a while longer. 
It was a beacon, an oasis, in a land otherwise stripped bare by years of waste and plunder. A city like Magdeburg, positioned as it was in such a vital location for the Swedes and the Habsburgs, would never have been able to embrace neutrality, even if its city fathers had wanted to. In this case, Gustavus Adolphus was correct. There was absolutely no third way for Magdeburg. With its allies too far away to help, the Habsburgs stormed the city and wreaked a brutal vengeance upon Magdeburg, such as hadn't been seen in European memory. The Protestant world wept, wrote one historian, and even Catholics were appalled. Daniel Fries was a citizen of Magdeburg, and he had moved his family there in 1628 to assume the office of senior city clerk. His son Friedrich would later write an account of what happened to them and their world on the night of the 20th of May, 1631. Friedrich recounted the events of that night when the army broke through the defences of the city of Magdeburg and stormed the city. The imperial soldiers cried in the alleys, All is one, all is one, and hammered on the doors like the devil himself. We poor people were so scared that we nearly died in our houses. We prayed and called to God to have mercy. Soon they thumped on our door. The soldiers threatened that they would not leave a soul alive unless we opened up. We had to let them in. They soon attacked father and mother and craved money. They were only two musketeers. Yet Friedrich's ordeal was not over. As the city began to flood with soldiers, it became harder to keep safe from their desperate quest for booty and plunder, which seemed to run roughshod over all sense of reason and decency. After they were discovered hiding in the family's barn, Friedrich and his younger brothers were brought out by the soldiers as their father came hurriedly to their defence. Friedrich remembered. The soldier then came at father with the pickaxe. We children crowded around the soldier, begging and crying that he should please let father live. Christian, my fourth brother, was then a small child who could barely walk and stammer a few words. He spoke in greatest fear to the soldier. Oh, please let father live. I'll gladly give you the three pennies I get on Sundays. Father used to give each child something each Sunday, if he learned a phrase from the Bible. This, coming from an unformed and in those days simple child, touched the soldier's heart, perhaps by God's merciful providence. He immediately changed and turned to us in a friendly rather than cruel manner. He looked at us children as we stood about him and said, Aye, what fine little lads you are, because he was a Nuremberger, and then said to our father, If you want to get out with your family, leave immediately, for the Croats will be here in an hour and you and your children will scarcely survive. Friedrich and his family managed to latch onto the soldier here and follow him to the nearest camp, just outside the city. The army which had besieged Magdeburg was a multi-ethnic force, and one could expect better treatment from soldiers that hailed from nearby states or cities. Yet Friedrich's journey towards the camp was not free from danger either. He recalled, On the way a student met mother and ripped the shawl from her body. Another wanted to grab the nanny who was carrying our little sister, but our soldier took her and... He let her go again. We saw many dead bodies in the streets, including some women, quite uncovered. It was a wretched spectacle. We all praised God heartily that he took us from this fire and war. Eventually, Friedrich and his family made it to the soldier's camp. After the soldier's wife chastised her husband for bringing so many refugees, the soldier quieted her by reasoning that he had to rescue the lads. God would grant him booty. 
It was at roughly 11pm that night, in their refuge, far from the city limits, that the most poignant spectacle of all took place. The infamous torching and sacking of Magdeburg, the city where Friedrich Fries had once called home. Friedrich remembered. That night at about 11 o'clock, the entire city of Magdeburg was ablaze. Father led us out of the soldiers' hut so we could speak of it all of our lives. In the camp, which was quite some distance from the city, it was so bright that you could have read a letter by the great glow of the fire. The destruction of Magdeburg was the worst single atrocity of the Thirty Years' War. In a city of tens of thousands, only 5,000 would remain in the aftermath. Considering the low survival rate, Friedrich Fries and his family were very lucky indeed to have survived the ordeal unharmed, but the city of Magdeburg itself was never the same again. To the inhabitants of Magdeburg, the 20th of May 1631 must have seemed like the coming of the apocalypse. Yet for the soldiers on the other side, those actually partaking in the plundering and looting, they would consider it a great success. It is certain that no more terrible work and divine punishment has been seen since the destruction of Jerusalem, claimed one, painting the event simultaneously in both biblical and inherently just terms. Magdeburg deserved what befell it, because the city fathers had for so long flouted the authority of their Habsburg masters. Due to the actions of a select few officials, all would suffer. No quarter would be given. All our soldiers became rich, the general concluded. God with us. Indeed, Magdeburg epitomised what had already become a common theme of the Thirty Years' War by 1631, that because of the actions of a select number of citizens, officials or soldiers, everyone in the city, the region or the country would suffer the consequences, regardless of culpability, age or sex. How did such a state of affairs become the norm in a continent buoyed by constant technological and scientific advancement. A generation before, citizens across the empire would have been horrified at the suggestion that a city such as Magdeburg, where the first truly Holy Roman Emperor Otto I had been buried, should be subjected to such a barbaric, merciless ordeal. The destruction of Magdeburg can partially be explained by the evident brutalisation of the common soldier, who had been desensitised to the horrors of war by that point after over a decade of conflict. Yet it can also be understood as an act of punishment, where a besieging army had been refused entry and surrender had been denied, liberating the soldiers from their traditional restraint. It also deserves mention that the fruits of Magdeburg, a city of plenty, were immensely appealing and desperately required by the Hasburg commander Count Tilly, who had been left essentially to fend for himself, when no resources from his master, the Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand II, seemed forthcoming. At least one historian has remarked that it is highly unlikely, considering his desperate want and need of supplies, that Count Tilly intended to destroy the city of Magdeburg, and that the fires which annihilated the city were likely started and spread through accident. Indeed, as Friedrich Fries's account demonstrates, not all enemy soldiers present at Magdeburg were cruel and unfeeling savages, and Fries's was not an isolated case amidst the horror, other soldiers helped civilians, including clergy, to escape, in the words of Peter H. Wilson, a distinguished historian on the Thirty Years' War. While Count Tilly would not have been thrilled at what had been done to the city, he could not afford to have dwelt upon the horrors for long. 
he would have reconciled the atrocity in the same manner that Gustavus Adolphus condemned neutrality, that one was either with the Habsburgs and the Emperor, or he was against them. As matters stood in spring 1631, it was not possible to show ample mercy when the needs of his forces were so acute, when the enemy was so near, and when the pressure was so high. Besides, Tilly could have concluded, Magdeburg had been given several, often generous opportunities, to choose God or the devil, and because she had chosen the devil, her people had been faced with scenes taken straight out of hell. The destruction of Magdeburg is perhaps the most infamous example of the kind of brutality that the Thirty Years' War produced. At its core, though, was a theme which would be repeated across the continent many times over. Magdeburg had gambled, she had chosen the wrong side, and she had paid the ultimate price. Whenever a ruler was forced into picking a side, as sometimes metaphorical or sometimes literal guns were pointed in his direction, damage was always going to be done. Whenever a city tradesman moved from one city to another and was captured along the way and asked where his loyalties lie or, even more sensitively, what religious persuasion he subscribed to, that city tradesman was forced to make a choice and the wrong one could cost him his life. Whenever raiding parties appeared in the distance, did the village's abled-bodied men stay and resist or did they gather all they could and flee in the process entering the pool of refugees scattered across the countryside? When Denmark entered the Thirty Years' War in 1625, when the Swedes entered in 1630, when the French entered it in 1635, all of these powers made a decision which could well bring the devil to their lands if they ended up on the losing side. In the case of all of these powers, disasters were visited upon them, just as surely as they visited disasters upon the lands and people of Europe. Gustavus Adolphus was right to attest that there was no third way. Countless people, villages, towns, families, businesses, farms, and as we saw, entire cities, were torn asunder because they had been pressed against a wall and forced to make a choice, only to discover in the end that this choice had been the wrong one. Whether we win or lose, commented one Lutheran Bohemian nobleman at the time of the Bohemian Revolt in 1618, our fate will be heavy. Yet these Bohemians also believed that they had little choice but to throw the representatives of their Habsburg masters out of the windows of the Hradschin Castle in Prague and to engage in open revolt. The alternative was to suffer religious repression and persecution under the intolerant thumb of their new king, soon to be Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand II. Certainly, following the three decades of conflict which haunted this act, the Bohemians were easy scapegoats for having started the whole terrible thing. Had they only endured their trials, then Europe would not have to have had suffered so much. Much like the First World War three centuries later, though, such ferocious, enraged horrors were not caused and prolonged by one factor alone. If the Bohemians had been solely responsible for the Thirty Years' War, in other words, then this conflict would have ended once their nightmares had been fulfilled and they were crushed under the Habsburg heel in the early 1620s. Alas, the horrors were not destined to be brief. Gustavus may have been correct about the absence of a neutral option, but he was wrong to insist that the war was won between God or the devil. This suggested that there was one side that was inherently more or less evil than the other. Reprisal, atrocity, devastation and horrors followed armies on all sides, of all nationalities, and at all times. Shortly before the sack of Magdeburg had so horrified his contemporaries, 
Gustavus Adolphus had overseen a similarly brutal sack of the city of Frankfurt, another city which had chosen the devil, in Gustavus's mind at least, and suffered for it. In a conflict where each side believed to be acting with God's blessing, it was hardly surprising that divine rhetoric preceded and followed the divine punishments, which were meted out. For God or the Devil is the name of the book that I'll be writing on the Thirty Years' War and releasing in November 2018 and which you can, of course, pre-order. It is the basis for this series on the Thirty Years' War and both the podcast series and the book will be borrowing from each other as we go along. The idea for it first struck me when I examined the Thirty Years' War nearly five years after the original podcast series I produced on it. Spanning 18 episodes and over 20 hours, it was a mammoth project, but it was also one which dazzled and overwhelmed me as much as it fascinated me. As a relative newcomer to the notions of constructing a historical narrative and developing a beginning and middle and end to a story I was trying to tell, I often found myself tripping over the countless numbers of characters or failing to appreciate the significance of yet another gory battle on yet another aching field. At the heart of these statistics were the real people of Europe, Cultured, spiritual, superstitious, thrifty they may have been, but they were also vulnerable, anxious, destitute for the most part, and in dire need of assurances for their livelihoods and lives. If the Thirty Years' War is a conflict which has been largely overshadowed by the total wars of the 20th century, then the average person trapped between a rock and a hard place on the ground floor of this debacle has been forgotten entirely. It is, of course, impossible to connect the reader, or in this case the listener, to these people who were evicted never to return, or who fled to pastures new, or even to whole villages which were torn down, never to rise from the ashes again. The best I can do in this situation, and with my approach, is to bring to life the bitter, animated struggle between the relevant powers, as all sides did not strive merely to gain an advantage, but also to preserve some segments of their old lives. For every supreme Swedish generalissimo or Spanish admiral engaged in a dashing fight on the high seas, there were the hundreds of small German princes trapped between that epic fight. To them, it must have seemed as though their entire world had fractured, as though all the guarantees made to them by the constitution of the Holy Roman Empire, as much as by the boundaries of human decency, had been destroyed. In a conflict supercharged by rhetoric and religion, as much as by the consistent intervention by foreign powers, how could the Thirty Years' War have been anything less than a war of heavenly proportions? A war between gods, devils, and everything else in between. It is my mission and my pleasure to take you on a journey through frightful scenes like these for this very special series of ours. If you've been intrigued by what you've heard here, then make sure to check in with us again for our second introductory episode. Until then, though, make your choice. Are you for God or are you for the devil? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 